Hi folks, welcome to episode 123 of the Epochs of the Lotus Eaters. I'm joined by Bo, and today we're going to be talking about something I know virtually nothing about. The War of Austrian Succession. Because part of my skipping the crazily complex wars of the sort of 17th to 19th centuries in Europe, apart from the Napoleonic Wars, was, uh, was this, actually. So I, I don't really, I just know, I remember when I was looking around at history when I first started getting interesting, I saw just a massive Wikipedia page about that. I was like, right, okay, that looks important. I'll, I'll ignore that for now. Hmm. Uh, this is one of those things. So uh, what right. happened? Well, where we've done a few episodes on the 18th century, mm. uh, what we did, uh, Walpole, we did Blenheim, and we did the War of the Spanish Succession. Yeah. Um, I'd like to do an episode, or perhaps even two, because it's such a big topic, on the Seven Years' War, mm. which is later than this. So this war, just to put it in its context, is, 1740 to 48. And the Seven Years' War is in the 50s, mm. through the 50s into the 60s, 1750s and 60s. Um, because that is a giant, giant thing. Churchill mm. called it the First World War. Um, it's, it was the biggest sort of global conflagration there had ever been up to that point. That, mm. That's the Seven Years' War. So you could quite easily say the biggest things that happen in the 18th century are the War of the Spanish Succession right at the beginning and then the Seven Years' War. The Seven Years' War is so huge that it sort of, it sort of sets the power structure for, uh, into the 20th century. Yeah. I mean, in some senses, until today, um, in some ways, <clears throat> it's just absolutely huge, Seven Years' War. So what I wanted to do is sort of link up that. This mm. will be sort of it's kind of an episode sort of, setting the scene for that because a lot of the players mm. in that start here we've got frederick the great frederick the second of prussia the house of hohenzollern there's uh maria Theresa of of austria mm -hmm. of the holy roman empire um george the uh, second louis the 15th all the players are in this mm. so this is sort of in a way sort of setting up although it's absolutely a big story a big war completely in its own right um, it's sort of, it is almost, it pretty much is on the scale of the War of the Spanish Succession, i.e. there's conflicts all over the world. Yeah. Some of this plays out in North America, um, in India, um, even Scotland get involved at one point. <laughs> so yeah, there's lots of players, and like the War of the Spanish Succession, there's sort of quite a few theatres, lots and lots of players. So if you know, if you are out there, one of the few people who know the War of the Sp Austrian Succession in great detail, Again, you'll notice that I'm going to have to miss out quite a lot of things. Yeah. So, for example, one of the things I'm probably not going to talk about in any real detail is uh, there's lots of campaigns in northern Italy. Again, mm. I'm not going to really do that in any real detail here. I will mention it and say what's going on, but you know, not the mm. individual battles and stuff. Um, so, yeah. So, to start then, I would say that although, as I've already mentioned, it's sort of a global thing and... Britain and France and Spain and all sorts of people involved. You could argue that it's mainly a showdown between the, the, the House of um, Habsburg and Prussia, i.e. Frederick the Great. This is where Frederick the Great, Frederick II, comes onto the scene. And now, as I, as I mentioned, all these people play huge role in the Seven Years' War. He plays an absolutely pivotal role. He couldn't be more involved, really, mm. in the Seven Years' War. So I want to set him up. And he's a big figure. Most people in um, sort of England and America, probably, sort of the Anglosphere, 
are aware of Fred, Frederick, mm. heard his name, maybe know a bit about his, his career and things. But because he's not sort of one of us exactly, um, a, a, a huge emphasis isn't put on him. But he is giant. You, you know, you don't get the epithet great <clears throat> for nothing. You really don't. There, there's so, also something alluring about Prussia. There's something in the same sort of way that the Greeks looked at Sparta with admiration. There's a kind of admiration about Prussia as well, like this this military state that has you know supreme discipline, an amazing army, and with very limited resources can essentially you know wow Europe, uh, wow great powers with its skill. And so Sparta, it's kind of like you know the Sparta of mm. you know it's 18th century Europe, right? And there's something about it that makes its leaders interesting in and of themselves. Because, I mean, to be a king, I mean, one, one of the things before we start, I've, I find fascinating about this. This is before nationalism is a political ideology, or a sort of concrete political ideology. And that's why we're talking about the succession of royal houses. You know, the, the, people, the, the people of a place owe loyalty to a king or to a duke or to whatever. And so... Britain feels like a weird outside place to this kind of politics because, of course, Britain is a national state. You know, we still have the monarch, but we still have the concept of Britain as a national state. Whereas, is that the same here? It's hard to say, right? It's, it doesn't mm. feel... It, this feels like an older style of politics, actually, if anything. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so there's just... A, it's a very interesting world, but the thing I'm trying to highlight is how different it is to where we are now. Mm. Like people just think differently yeah. about all of these things. And we don't realize it. Like the concepts of honor, I mean, duels are fought in mm. this day and age. You know, we just can't even imagine risking your life for your honor. Like, mm. the, the, these are the sort of people that we're dealing with. Right? Mm. It's true. It is a very different world in all sorts of ways. Um, so something to say then, just first of all, to kick off a few words about Prussia. Mm. So, if you know anything about 19th or even 20th century history, Prussia is almost a byword for military excellence. Yeah. That's what that is. Okay. And it starts here. It starts with Frederick's father, hmm. um, Frederick William, his father, Frederick I, who um, was seemingly obsessed with drilling his infantry, specifically his infantry, to just make them like almost like robots the, the thing is when, whenever i'm playing a strategy game i'm an infantry man <laughs> I, I love i love my heavy infantry <laughs> and so i'm i'm just hearing this and being like yeah well i'd do the same if i were in his position you know having the best infantry because it's the infantry that really holds the battle so quite often it's, yeah those, i mean they they win the day multiple times in mm. this story let alone going mm. forward uh, one example, when the Japanese were forced to open up to the, mm. the rest of the world in the 19th century, uh, and they decided they were just going to reform themselves, mm. take everything that's best about the West, well, they decided just to copy the Prussian model for their army and copy the British model for their navy. Makes so sense. in other words, sort of kind of obviously the best army is the Prussian army. Yeah. Okay. So, but to mention now... Where this story starts, that's not the case. His father has spent a generation nearly drilling his infantry, but only mm. the infantry. We'll get into how the cavalry isn't up quite up to snuff yet, and it's Frederick II who does that. Um, we'll get into how, when this story starts, no one 
thinks of Prussia as being this amazing military force. And it's in this story, mm. the war of the Austrian succession, where everyone sort of realizes, you know, sometimes at school, there'll be a kid mm. and like in the space, it literally, this literally happened a few times at my school, with some kid that people pick on and don't really think anything of. You'll have like two or three fights in the space for a couple of weeks and suddenly everyone just reappraises him. It's like, actually, you don't mess with that kid. Suddenly he's the tough guy. Yeah. So yeah, not necessarily yeah. tough, but just, well, you don't mess with him anymore, mm. at least. He, he's not someone you can just pick on. Yeah. This is what Prussia goes through at this point. They mm. go from just another one of the principalities, kingdoms in the Holy Roman mm. Empire to, oh, they're absolutely a power in their own right. Okay, mm. they absolutely need to be taken seriously for themselves, sort of 100%. Mm. That's, that's what happens in this story. It might it? be worth going through a quick uh, history of Prussia um, because uh, it's a complex place that's not normal. In European in the European experience, so as as I recall, uh, Prussia is the consequence of the sort of uh, crusading fervor of the Teutonic Knights, um, essentially genociding mm. uh, large parts of sort of Slavic northern northeastern Europe, and setting up a sort of German ruling class over it, and this morphs into this militaristic state. Uh, over the course of a few hundred years, and then turns into because Prussia is what the Baltic tribe, the Slavic tribe, the Prussians were called, and so it's inherited this name, and so it is not in a very advantageous position. Um, it has very little in the way of actual you know, natural resources or defensible borders. It's essentially on its own, and it's uh, can be invaded from basically any direction. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So Prussia is one of the bigger members of the Holy Roman Empire. So the Holy mm. Roman Empire is sort of absolutely led by the, the crown of, of Austria mm. and, and Hungary, the dual crown. And they're sort of, that's sort of the biggest, most prosperous, most populous bit. Mm. And the other big players are sort of Saxony, Bohemia, Bavaria, Prussia, Hanover. And then there's loads and loads, dozens of little ones. Mm. But of the bigger ones, other than Austria itself, um, Prussia is among the biggest ones, but it's still, you would say it's, it's sort of third or fourth, maybe on the list, fifth, maybe on the list. One of the main things about it, and it's centered around Berlin, Berlin is its capital. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, it's sort of ultra German. Mm. There's this idea sort of, what is the most German thing? Is it sort of Bavaria around Munich, or is it more sort of Berlin or Potsdam? Wow. So the two biggest cities in Prussia were, at this yeah. point anyway, Berlin and Potsdam. So it's very much sort of Eastern Germany. What in the 20th century, yeah. second half of the 20th century, was East Germany. So Northeast Germany yeah. is what it is. So the, what, what, what I find interesting about this is um, AJP Taylor, uh, in, on the course of German history, uh, said, look, Germany didn't have to be what it became. Uh, it was the Prussians defeating Napoleon, he mm. thinks, that, prevented liberalism from really taking root in Germany. And so the sort of Prussian ethos of uh, absolutism became like Germanness, became synonymized with Germanness um, after the defeat of Napoleon, who represented a foreign conquering ideology. Um, and so, and that's, you know, that's AJP Taylor. So I don't know, you know, but honestly, there's, it sounds like there's something to it to me, you know, because there is underneath, mm. underneath like the sort of, authoritarian German mindset, this kind of wholesome rural German attitude where it's just, they're, they're a lot more like us, actually. 
in like the villages, right? But then when you get to the sort of officialdom, they you can feel the Prussianness about them, and it's just like, hmm. yeah, there's something about it I don't like. I like the rural German. So Frederick the Great and his father were sort of absolute elected. Well, they 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 called themselves electors. So you've got sort yeah. of the elector of Hanover, the elector of Bavaria, the elector of Prussia, which means they've got uh, an electoral vote when it comes to voting for the Holy Roman Emperor. Yes, um, but they were absolute monarchs. It's a very exclusive kind of democracy. Uh, yeah. They, they did rule as autocrat. Yeah. Um, the other thing to say, one of the main things to say about Prussia at this point, is that it had its various lands. They're, they're all up and around Berlin and Potsdam in what is sort of northeastern Germany. But they, had, they were a bit scattered and broken up. Mm. They had other lands between them, lands that belonged to um, Poland. So mm. there was a, a Lithuanian-Polish commonwealth. Which was and, huge. And I, yeah, I'll put a map up and you can see that's giant. We should do a whole epoch on that at some point. Well, yeah, just before this, there was the War of the Polish Succession, yeah. which is a bit of a smaller affair. And um, I didn't think it was worth doing a whole epoch episode on it. But yeah, that was a whole thing. We should do, just do it on Poland-Lithuania, because it's fascinating that at some point it's bigger than France, you know. and It's, it's giant, yeah. And it has a tiny army. So which... just to say then, super quick on that, quick aside <laughs> on that, is that at this point, the Elector of Saxony hmm. is king of Lithuania, Poland right, at this okay. point. Right. And it's giant. And shortly after this, well, not shortly after, actually, a few decades after this, I think actually after, it's after the Seven Years' War. Yeah, shortly after the time um, span. Sorry? Relative time span. Yeah. After the Seven Years' War, Prussia, Austria, and Russia hmm. basically carve up Poland, Lithuania. Hmm. Um, so when, after World War I, when Woodrow Wilson sort of insisted that we, they recreate Poland, hmm. it's, it didn't come out of nowhere. No. It goes back to sort of medieval times. Yeah. Um, Anyway, in this, at this point, basically Saxony control Lithuania, Poland. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's something like a buffer zone between Russia and hmm. Central Europe. Um, but what we're saying so, is the sort of east of Europe is very complicated and very old and drenched in blood. So there's a big bit, the main bit of Prussia at this point, again, which contains Berlin and Potsdam and stuff. There's a big part of what they called Royal Prussia mm. in between that and other holdings even further east, mm. up and around where Danzig is, which, which was a problem even into the 20th century. So one of the main goals for Frederick is to unite his lands, to conquer various bits of land to make Prussia all one continuous thing. Mm. And they also used to long before this, control certain bits of Silesia. And again, I'll put up a map, so most people might not know exactly where Silesia is. Um, but that's sort of one of the main crux of the War of the Austrian Succession. The War of the Austrian Succession is like the War of the Spanish Succession, a, an overall, a, a coverall umbrella term, which actually includes lots and lots of different wars, like mm. the Seven Years' War. Within the War of the Austrian Succession are lots of other wars, mm. like the War of Jenkins' Ear, it, that's us and Spain going yeah. at each other's throats a year before the War of the Austrian Succession kicks off. There's two Silesian wars are involved in part of the, um, the War of the Austrian Succession. Mm. So although lots goes on, arguably, you could probably say, one of the, one of the main things, one of the most important things is the, the showdown 
between Prussia and Frederick the Great and, um, and the Habsburgs, Austrian, uh, <clears throat> sometime Holy Roman emperors mm. against each other for control of Silesia. So Silesia is quite a big bit of land. It's about a third of the size of England, sort of a big chunk of sort of West, uh, Eastern Europe. Mm. Um, it's really populous, like over a million people. Um, and it had, at that point, one of the highest levels of, quote-unquote, industrialization. Mm. Um, so it was a, a real prize, arguably the richest part of the Holy Roman Empire, or Silesia. So whoever controlled it, and again, on a map, you can see that if Prussia controlled it, it's sort of a great bouncing off point into Prague and even Vienna. And if the Austrians control it, it sort of pushes up into Prussian territory. So it's, it's just really, really important. Hmm. And parts of it, most of it, had been Prussian in the past, but was now Austrian. And, uh, well, so Frederick the Great sort of coveted it. Um, but his father, Frederick William, Frederick I, uh, a quick w few words about him and Frederick the Great's childhood. Because um, Frederick the Great, we've got to get into a little bit about all about his actual personality. You know, it's someone like Alexander or mm. Caesar or Henry V or something. You should sort of need to know a little bit about the actual man himself. Um, and he was, he was a bit complicated because although he's sort of this great martial leader a great leader of men a, a great general king type person he was also really cultured mm. a, 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 a bit fey uh, maybe gay um i mean he had a wife and stuff but also seems to have been yeah that <laughs> alexander type gay where he was into marching men and military things but also liked boys i mean um I'm just thinking, yeah, yeah, another gay of representation on the distant right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it seems like he he sort of was. Um, yeah, although it was never sort of proven in his lifetime. Although his father just openly called him a sodomite and stuff, and his younger brother Henry was, I think, fairly openly gay. And he was, uh, but like I say, he was married, and yeah. um, so course, politically he was married. Yeah, and um, but he liked to sort of surround himself by men all the time and commissioned paintings of mm. scantily clad men it, from the ancient world and all that sort of thing it's all of it is he the one who had the giant bodyguard i, I don't know probably because there was there was one who literally got like six foot five guys to be his bodyguard i can't remember who it was oh um i assumed it was frederick great but it might have been i know that one of the russian czars i think czar paul the first Catherine the Great's son. I think he did that. Oh, is that him? I think uh, more than one person would have done yeah, that. Yeah, that's a classic thing, isn't yeah, it? Caligula you, did that. Yeah, you want the huge dudes around you to protect you, right? Mm, mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So I just assumed that Frederick the Great had done it. And when you say, "Oh, he had a fondness for men," it's like, wow. It quite often be a thing that grenadiers. You'd want the tallest men mm. to be grenadiers. Yeah, for example. So that was totally a thing in the 18th and 19th centuries. That mm. depending on what your role was in the army kind of depended on how big you were. Mm. If you was a skirmisher, um, it didn't really matter. You could be small. That was um, probably advantageous. Yeah. To be a cavalryman might be better to yeah. be small because just like uh, horses have got a weight limit. The yeah. smaller you are, like a jockey, the smaller you are, the better in a way. People don't realise that um, horses 
only a few hundred years ago were actually a lot smaller than horses mm. now as well. Like they're, they're not giant steeds like you see on TV now. But anyway. But to be a grenadier, mm. they'd quite often want you to be the tallest guys mm. and wear big tall hats and you look like giants going around the battlefield. A lot like, of yeah. war is psychological. Yeah. Most yeah. of it, in fact. Um, so Frederick the Great was raised until he was seven by his mother and his auntie, and he had a sister who he loved and doted upon his, his whole mm. life. And he was brought up sort of very, in a very soft manner, a pretty soft manner, encouraged to be involved with sort of poetry mm. and literature and make-believe and, um, and uh, telling stories and doing dress-up and stuff. And then when he was seven, he was sort of transferred to the, to the guardianship of his father, who was mm. the most brutal father Really brutal. Beat him all the time. Um, like while he was growing up, telling him to commit suicide and stuff. Like you know, there's a certain way of um, dealing with soldiers is to break them. Yeah. In some, quite often, in fact, basic training mm. is an exercise in breaking you. Yeah. Breaking you down, breaking you down to absolutely nothing, and then building you up again to be a perfect killing machine. Mm. That's what Frederick William did to Frederick the Great from the age of about seven is to try and make him like this super hard guy. Mm. Now, sometimes that works, often that works, and you end up with a great soldier at the end of it, a great Marine or something. But if it doesn't work, it really doesn't work. Yeah. It means you just hate your father or you just hate the army or your drill instructors. It means you just despise them forever. And anyway, that's how it played out. Right. Um, at some point when he was about, when he was in his late teens or about 20 odd, Frederick the Great tried to run away. You don't really do that. That's not really an option in those days. It doesn't a sound man of his great, rank. does it? Mm. Yeah. Well, it's just that his father was so tyrannical. Mm. It was sort of, yeah, it seems like tyrannical is the word. Mm. Um, that real old school, even for the 18th century yeah. of, um, I will beat you to death if you don't do as you're told all the time, that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, it seems crazily harsh to us. Yeah. Um, but there you go. He tried to run away with his best friend. And some said might have been his lover, but we don't know. And anyway, when his father caught up with him, he briefly imprisoned him and said he was going to have him executed, which he didn't do in the end, of course. Yeah. But he did force him to watch the beheading of his best friend. Yeah, it just gives you an idea of what it, what it was like. What's the need for any of this? To be the son of yeah. Frederick William, Frederick I. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he was the guy who insisted that really the whole state of Prussia is going to be geared around making his infantry divisions, mm. his, uh, his regiment afoot, to make them the best, the best of the best, and by some way. Mm that they will be almost like automatons on the battlefield. The, the, the uniforms will be perfect. They'll be able to yeah. manoeuvre in ways that no one had really done before. For example, even in the 18th century, it was still quite difficult to get regiments of foot to sort of change direction perfectly on a dime. You know, like now it's sort of, it's sort of a path of the course, at least in the West, isn't it? That you, a lot of basic training hmm. is about the, the, the parade ground about, drilling, drilling, yeah. about how to yeah. march properly yeah. and how to change direction 
exactly all at mm. once and all that sort of thing. Well, that was still kind of new-ish. And anyway, Frederick William takes it to a whole new level. Um, so when he died in 1740... Everyone breathed a sigh of relief. Yeah, yeah. Apparently Frederick the Great basically had a party. Uh, <laughs> I'm not surprised. I know. Right, I don't yeah. blame him. Like, thank God. Yeah, yeah, yeah This yeah. sort of demon of a father has, yeah. has died, finally. <laughs> Um, and even the whole of Prussia sort of breathed a sigh of relief, we're told, on some level. I bet. Like, oh, thank God. <laughs> um, yeah. And everyone knew about Frederick the Great. Yeah. That um, he was cultured in a way. It was definitely had been brought up to be a military person. Yeah. He was also very cultured. He loved music. Yeah. He played the flute very well, apparently. He surely can't be as bad as his father. Right, yeah. Whatever it is, it's not as bad as the old man. And he was a great patron of the arts. He was a massive fanboy of Voltaire. He was a Renaissance. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was one of those mm. 18th century sort of reformer, Renaissance men type person, yeah. Mm. Uh, he loved the arts and music and poetry and all sorts of things. He was a bit of, he was a Francophile, actually. Yeah. Because it's funny that, uh, not particularly funny, haha, but funny, interesting to note that he's gone down in history as sort of, <clears throat> Ultra German, ultra Germanic. Yeah. That's how in the 19th and 20th century, people like to paint him mm. as that, as being the most German you could possibly be. Mm-hmm. Sort of one of, if not the greatest figure in German history is Frederick II. And yet he himself in his real, li- in real life was a total Francophile. But it's a, a lot of like um, the monarchs were though, right? Yeah. Like a lot of yeah. just like you know, the Russian monarchs and... You know, the, the, the Austrians, a lot of them just really had a weird lust for France. Well, France had been, the position culturally high, yeah, speaking, the place of high culture. Yeah, yeah for centuries. Mm. It's like today, you know, you can go to somewhere, somewhere really remote in, in Asia and people will be wearing a, a New York cap. Yeah. You know, the extent yeah. that, to which America dominates culturally. Mm. You know, you can go to... You go to yeah, really remote places in the world, and people got like a New York T-shirt or something. Yeah. Or they watch TV that's produced in California. That's yeah. what's on their TV yeah. in in Cambodia. Yeah. Right. So I mean, um, so yeah, France had something like that going on. That you just look to France to be. What are they doing? Mm. What are they wearing? Yeah. What's the fashion this year? What literature and plays and operas do they mm. like? Well, we like that now, right? That's the cool thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, and Voltaire was extremely famous in his own lifetime for being sort of the uh, sort of, yeah, the, one of the greatest writers, mm. artists, poets, sort of things, not artists, but one of the greatest writers. Um, yeah. Uh, and Frederick was a massive fanboy, uh, mm. literally a fanboy, sending him letters saying, please come and visit me. I'm your biggest fan and stuff like that. So... Gives you an idea. Well, I mean, I, of, of all the Frenchmen, I like Voltaire the most because he hated Rousseau. Mm. He seems quite like England as well. He was a satirist. Yeah. Um, he's quite funny, Voltaire, mm. some of the things he'd say. Oh, yeah. Um, but he, he despised Rousseau. Mm. It was great because yeah, Rousseau deserved it. Um, I recently keep mentioning uh, Kenneth Clark, the art historian, but he said Voltaire was one of the most intelligent men ever to have lived. Possibly. Which seems over the top to me, but he was clearly a very sharp man. Oh yeah, yeah. But he'd write sharp. plays, and he's a yeah. playwright essentially. Oh, yeah. But anyway, 
and a commentator. Yeah. yeah. Um, apparently Frederick would send him poems all the time to, for him to sort of correct and make better. At one point Voltaire said something like, I wish the King of Prussia would stop sending me his dirty laundry. Or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I bet yeah. Voltaire was not impressed. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't. Apart from anything else, Frederick wasn't a great poet, no. um, apparently. Uh, although, just to say on that, not that I've read any of his poetry, but I have read bits of excerpts from a history he wrote. We know a lot about this period now. It's sort of the, 18th, the mid-18th century now. It's kind of fully in the light of history. He wrote uh, his history was um, a history of my times. Um, so he wrote everything about, and obviously it's skewed, and you've got to be careful when people write their own history, but nonetheless, it's sort of of great value. He's quite self-reflective and uh, criticises himself a lot. It doesn't, it's not a hagiogra- self-hagiography or anything. So 1740 is a really big year, yeah. uh, because three of the main players on the stage of European history die all yeah. in that year, which sparks off Chaos. Well, a succession yeah. crisis. Yeah. Um, so uh, Frederick William... Um, Frederick the Great's father, he dies, so the throne in Prussia passes to Frederick the Great, and Frederick the Great's like, what, 27, I think, so still young-ish, yeah. certainly young, oh, yeah, you'd say. Young, yeah. um, there's the, the, the Tsarina of Russia, Anna, she dies. Um, so actually, Russia don't play a massive part in the story until the end, hmm. um, but also the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles VI, in Vienna, dies and that's the big one right so the main problem with that is that the Habsburgs and the Holy Roman Empire had always had had always adhered to the Salic law which says women can't inherit yeah now he L- had, literally the crux of Henry V's invasion mm, right yeah yeah it's been yeah. used for centuries and centuries to yeah create disputes or settle disputes yeah that women just can't inherit now, this Charles VI, the Holy Roman Emperor, um, King of the Austrians and Hungarians and other things, lots of other things, uh, a whole list of titles, um, he, saw it, he sort of saw it coming. So many years before this, he had been childless in like uh, 1713, he was still childless. Charles VI passes a law saying that his daughters can inherit, if he ha- only has daughters, mm. that they can, in fact, inherit. Oh, really? Um, and that's what goes on to happen. He only has daughters. Right. Now, um, there's some parallels with Henry I of England, where he only had a daughter after the white ship incident, and his son was died, was killed before his time, and he only has his daughter, Matilda. He tries to get all the other powers, all the other powerful power brokers to agree to accept her when he dies and she takes over, mm. that they'll, they'll recognise her. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.